Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. How are we doing? Awesome. Just before we get started, uh, during worship... And one of the things we like to do or try to do here is try to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to move in our, in our gathering as he sees fit. And because when he moves, it's a blessing. And, uh, and so uh, we just encourage people to pursue the gifts of the Spirit, pursue God's leading in your life. And um, during worship, as we were singing, in my mind, in my heart, I got a, a vision of somebody this morning who lost or misplaced their keys and was kind of frantically trying to um, find their keys. Is anybody here like that? I knew it was you. I knew it. Is it Amanda or Angela? Angela. Yeah, I knew it was you. I just wanted to make sure. That's how I was testing. So what the Lord spoke to me, and this is not to embarrass you. I just want to encourage you, okay? He told me in my heart, he said, your life's been feeling like it's out of control. So a lot of a lot of chaos going on, and you're searching for direction, and you don't, and you just can't find it. You're you're searching hard, high and low, and you can't find it. But what God wants you to do is just be still, and know that He's got you, that that He's in control. And you know when you're looking for something, you can't find it, but you step back and you take a breath, and all of a sudden you open your eyes and it's standing right in front of you. It's like that's how close the next step is. That's how close it is. But He wants you to just remember. Who is your provider? Who is your leader? It's, it's Jesus Christ. He wants you to focus on him. And when you have God vision, you're going to see very clear on what that next step is in your life, okay? So, so just keep trusting him, all right? Bless you. Bless you. So good. I love the Lord. It's so amazing to be a child of God. It is. It's so awesome. We are in this series, Identity Crisis. Have you been enjoying this series? It's been kind of fun. Yeah. It's been really good. Uh, today... We're going to talk about the next part of our identity to try to really understand what it means to be a child of God. But before we get on, I just want to talk about my favorite lunchtime food growing up as a kid. When I was a young kid, I really loved the old-fashioned peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Anybody like a, a good PB&J? And we got a picture of that up on the screen here for you. Um, now, I don't eat a lot of PB&Js now because it doesn't fit into my high-protein, low-carb diet uh, anymore, so I don't, I don't eat too many of those, um, very rare, but it was a go-to when I was a kid. I remember in elementary school in New England, for those of you that don't know geography, New England is the Boston area. I don't know what happened after the Revolutionary War. We thought we could do England better, so now we have a New England, just like we have a New York and a new Dutch Pennsylvania. I it's America, right? We, do, we try to do everything better, right? Um, but uh, in New England, in elementary school, when, when it was like first, second grade, we only had three options for lunch. You could have hot lunch, and I don't even remember what they served because it didn't apply to me. Uh, you had the peanut butter and jelly, or you had a peanut butter and fluff, otherwise known as a fluff nutter Have you heard of a fluff nutter We have a picture of that. If you don't know a peanut butter, it's a peanut butter sandwich with marshmallow cream. Oh my goodness, you, you mix marshmallow cream and peanut butter together, I, I swear, that's what they ate in the desert. That's manna from heaven. It's like angel food. You know, if I have to confess, I smashed one or 2,000 fluffernutters in my day. Um, but peanut butter and jelly is a common go-to snack for kids. It, it's a quick meal for parents. But I think kids today are spoiled rotten. Because they have these things you can buy. Like I, I buy groceries at the store. I do like uh, buy groceries for shipped on the side. And so I often go to the store. And in the freezer aisle, they have frozen peanut butter and jelly sandwiches called Uncrustables. Uncrustables. Kids, not only is it just you just quick and grab it out of the freezer. They don't have the luxury of trying to tear off their own crust. I remember trying to do that and trying not to rip half the sandwich off, peeling my crust off, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, so I think kids are awfully spoiled today. But, but this is a common go-to for, for parents, for kids. Um, 
it satisfies, it's got some protein in there, it gives you the energy. Uh, and, and I just think that it's one of the best inventions of our day. You know, because even for moms, you know, moms across the world love the peanut butter and jelly sandwich because choosy moms choose what? Jif. You see what I, see what I did there? Yeah, we'll be here all day. Okay. So peanut butter and jellies are easy to make. So if you think about the ingredients of a PB&J, what, what goes into a PB&J? Peanut butter, jelly, and bread, right? Three, three basic ingredients. Now, when I was growing up, I ate grape jelly. That's what we grew up on was grape jelly. When I got married, I was informed grape jelly was gross. So now I eat strawberry jelly. If I have a straw, any strawberry jelly fans? Yes, shout out to my strawberry jelly cohorts. We are, so at the Henry household, if you come for a PB&J, you're getting strawberry jelly. It's, it's a cardinal sin to have grape. But um, if you think about peanut butter and jelly, the main three ingredients, these are the ingredients that we think of for this delicious snack. But that's not all the ingredients in the sandwich. Because each ingredient has its own ingredients, right? So if you, if you want to like break it down, to make peanut butter... You need peanuts, salt, sugar, and some oil to solidify it. That's what you need in peanut butter. If you want to make bread, uh, just going off of a white bread recipe, you need water, yeast, salt, sugar, milk, egg, and an oil or fat. If you want to make jelly, you need berries, lemon juice, pectin, whatever that is. Yeah, I know what it does. I just don't think it sounds like it's healthy for you. Right, it thickens it. Yeah, like I need to be thicker. And then you need some sugar. So you have all these additional ingredients. And just in case you wanted to go home and make some fluff, you got water, granulated sugar, corn syrup, egg whites, cream of tartar, that sounds gross, and vanilla extract. So you have all these additional ingredients. But in a basic peanut butter and jelly, it's not three ingredients, it's actually 12 individual ingredients that go into making this sandwich. You see, consciously, when we think of making a PB&J, we think of the three ingredients, even though subconsciously we know there's more underneath the surface. And as a society, we're becoming more aware of what's going into our food, hence the low sugar, no fat, no carb, diet crazes, the organic, the, the, the plea for more organic foods. And, and so we're becoming more aware. And what this does is allow us to make healthier choices to benefit our bodies and our families. When you think about your life for a moment, or you think about your experiences, especially as it pertains to the area of identity, what you believe about yourself, most often we only think on the surface what my immediate experiences are, what my current situation is, uh, what I think about uh, my, my talents, my abilities, the things that are on the surface, very rarely do we often look what's beneath the surface. What's underneath that's having an effect on our lives, our deep motivations, the motivations in our hearts driving us to act and respond the way we do. In the Word of God, it tells us about an issue we all have. We all share this. There's, no one is exempt from this issue. It's working against part of us being able to realize our full identity, who we really are as children of God. It's, a, it's plaguing us, working against who God has created us to be. So today, we're going to shift from talking about being accepted, and as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, and today, we're going to shift to talk about being secure. Secure. And what we are is secure in the love of God. We are secure in the love of God. An interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 2, after the writer of Hebrews is talking about why Jesus came, that he had to die, and how he died, the manner of his death, he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves 
to the fear of dying. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you in this place. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. Open our hearts and our ears, our minds and our thoughts. God, we ask you to block any invading thought from the enemy, any distraction. And God, we ask you to make our hearts good soil. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that understands, and a heart that is ready to believe the very word that you've spoken. And I ask God that you would break us through out of the struggle and out of this, this malady we face and into a greater revelation of your love for us today. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So a slave is a person who's held against their will, right? I understand that. You, you have no choice. You are forced into something. And here what the Bible is teaching us is that Jesus came in human form, gave his life on the cross so he could set us free from being enslaved to the fear of dying. Now, this applies to all of us. Remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That's everybody. So that's everyone on the planet. We are all slaves to the fear of dying. This word fear here in the, in the original language can literally mean terror. So there is a terror underneath the surface in our spirit, in our lives, this terror or fear of dying that we are subconsciously wrestling with each and every day of our lives. It affects how we think and behave in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but when I wake up first thing in the morning, dying is not on my mind. If dying is on your mind, you need help. I'm just kidding, but you do. No, I'm just playing. It's not the first thing on my mind. What is on my mind? What I have to do for the day and, and going about my business, things that are coming up. But this fear affects us underneath the surface of our motivations, thoughts, and beliefs, not on top of the surface. And if you really begin to think about this issue, how death dominates every area of our lives. Death, this fear of death dominates every aspect of our lives. Think about why do we diet and exercise? Because we don't want to kill our quality of life. Why do we wear seatbelts in a car? Because we don't want to die in a car crash. Why do we work on and invest in our relationships? Because we don't want our relationships to die. Why do we manage our money? We don't want to destroy our financial solvency. Why do we work on our vehicles, our cars? We don't want them to die. Right, this is Michigan. Sooner or later, I don't care what car you drive, it's going to rust. The rust is coming for you. Your car is going to die. I don't care how fancy it is, how new it is. Rust is coming for your car, which means the car salesman's coming for you. Sooner or later. Why do we study in school to get good grades? We don't want to kill future opportunities. Why does, do Americans fight to protect the Constitution so we don't experience the death of our nation? Why do we keep remodeling and fixing up our houses? Because over time, they break down and wear out. And sooner or later, they end in the garbage heap. Why do we eat to keep from starving to death? Why do we drink to keep from dying of thirst? Even things that are meant to make us feel safe are just an illusion. Think about it. Why do you close and lock your doors at night? Because you don't want anyone to break in to do you harm or someone you love to do you harm. But it's just an illusion. Because they may not break down your door. They may come through the window. Right? The things we put in place that we search for to create a sense of security are just an illusion. Death has touched Everything. We go to great lengths to create a sense of security, but there are no guarantees that we are actually secure. Again, the intruder may break through the window. You might be wearing your seatbelt, but die in the crash anyway. You might work hard as you can on your marriage, but your relationship could still end in divorce, or one day your spouse will pass away and it's over. Uh, there are so many things. If we're honest, we would admit there is literally nothing in this world that can keep death from having access to our lives. There is no medical treatment that can make you immortal. There's no lotion or cream that can keep death from changing your outer exterior from its present state to what it looks like before you pass away. There's no plastic surgery. There's, there's nothing we can rely on for security. Literally, we live our lives unsecure. 
We are not secure against death. And because such is life, we are foundationally insecure. And we're fighting every day of our lives to find a sense of security, no matter how confident you feel in the moment or you think you are. At the subconscious level, there is a fear of death driving you every moment of your life. In physics, according to Britannica.com, the second law of thermodynamics, this is a law of physics, states that in a closed system, there are no processes that will tend to occur that increase the net organization of the system uh, or decrease the amount of chaos or disorder in the system. Thus, the universe taken as a whole is steadily moving toward a state of complete randomness, lacking any order, pattern, or beauty. This fate was popularized in the 19th century as the heat death of the universe. Literally, every molecule in the known universe is heading towards a state of destruction. Every bit of existence. Death is touching everything, including the universe, and we can do nothing to stop it. The only thing we can do is manage how we deal with it. It's the only thing we can do. We can't try to block, we can try to block it out. We can try to go into denial and make attempts to generate a sense of security. But in the end, we are really are not secure. Death is a reality. And this is why, beloved, Jesus came into the world. He came to set us free from the fear of death. And how did he do it? He did it by revealing the only constant in life. The only thing that can give you confidence assurance, the only thing that will never fail, never end, and never die. And it is the unfailing love of Almighty God. In Psalm 143, verse 8, the psalmist says, Let me hear of your unfailing love each morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. He's crying out to the Lord. His heart, it's his heart. It's the heart of the psalmist to be reminded every morning, the moment he wakes up, of God's love. Why? Because it's the only secure thing we have in life. It's the only thing we can cling to and hope to. It's the only eternal thing we can grasp onto that is strong enough to sustain us. The only thing we can count on every day. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and what? Love. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? It's because love gives birth to the other two. Love, God's love, his unfailing love is what gives us hope. And because we have hope, we can faith. We can walk in faith. We can count on his love to come through every time. And becoming more aware of God's love for you is the antidote for the fear that is dominating you. Becoming more and more aware of God's love for you, beloved, is the antidote for the fear that is dominating you, the fear that is pervasive in the world, the very fear robbing you of your true identity in Jesus Christ. So how does fear do this? How does fear rob us of our identity in Christ? Well, fear, beloved, is what makes us reluctant. It's what makes us reluctant. The word reluctance means an unwillingness or a disinclination to do something. So it doesn't just apply, or if you think of sin, in James, in the book of James, James tells us that sin is not just doing things that are wrong. It's also failing to do things that are right. It's not just purposely doing things that are against God's will or his heart. It's also not doing the things God wants you to do. It's a double-edged sword. So there are many things as believers, especially in this day and age, this culture, this time, this country, that we're reluctant to do as children of God, that the word of God guides us to do to bring about blessings in our lives and in the world. We're reluctant to do them because it's fear that gets in the way. People are reluctant to go to events like City Walk. Dave, I appreciate you stepping in and doing the announcements. We, we had the City Walk event a couple weeks ago, and it was an amazing time. And last week, uh, the gathering of worship was probably one of my most favorite services we've ever had here at VLC. 
It was just amazing uh, just to share and to celebrate that together. But those that went to City Walk and, and we just gathered to pray and to pray over people, many will tell you they were reluctant to come. They were fearful. They, they, they kind of didn't want to come because they didn't know what to expect. And so this, that's witnessing to other people, sharing the love of Christ, it's a basic essential of the Christian life, right? To, to be called a Christian, that means to be Christ-like. We're called followers of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He went around teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. What do followers of Jesus do? We witness about what we've seen and heard about Jesus testifying about the kingdom of God. This is what we do. It's basic, very basic. But yet most believers don't do it. We don't testify. We don't proclaim. We don't step out in faith to share our faith with other people. Why? Because we're afraid. We're reluctant. Believers today are reluctant to get involved into small groups of people for fear of not being accepted or people finding out about their problems and judging them or worse, hearing about other people's problems and feeling like you have to do something about it, getting involved in their mess. We're reluctant to commit, to surrender to God's calling in our lives, reluctant to pursue the baptism and filling of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, to be used by God for fear of the unknown, that we might feel weird or experience something crazy, like speaking in tongues. Oh, I don't know about that speaking in tongues stuff. That's just weird. It's from God. It's from God. There's an anxiety in the body of Christ that gets in the way of bold faith. The very faith the Bible says pleases the Lord. Because there's fear. There's reluctance. You know, our six core values of our church is wholehearted worship. There's fear that gets in the way of people being able to worship without hindrance. Unyielding truth. There's fear that gets in the way of people devoting their lives to studying the Word of God. You know, my wife... We'll, we'll testify several years ago, um, she was endeavoring to read the word of God more. And I, I'm so thankful for a wife who's a woman of the word. But several years ago, she didn't read or study as much as she does now. And she was fearful to begin reading the word of God because every time she did, she felt she went under spiritual attack. Why do you think the enemy wants you to be afraid of doing things like reading the word of God? Because you become dangerous when you know who you are. And so he's going to attack to create fear to keep you from being obedient to God. As believers, our core values, not just wholehearted worship or unyielding truth, it's also unceasing prayer. We have a group of 50 to 65 that gather on a Sunday, but we usually only have about four or five at our prayer night. We have people that say, I don't pray out in public. Why? You're afraid. You're afraid. Intentional community, getting together, sharing life together, getting involved in other people's mess because we need to encourage and build each other up, but we don't do it. Why? We're afraid to be uncomfortable. Being an unrelenting witness, sharing your faith. Why don't we? We're afraid. Crazy generosity. It's a big core value of our church, giving and blessing people with giving. And we have such a generous church, but why aren't we more generous? We're afraid. We're not going to be able to get to do what we want to do. Fear gets in the way of who God wants us to be. You know, I always wanted to start a retirement fund. And last year, we finally did it. Like, for years, I was like, we got to start a retirement fund. We got to start a retirement fund. And my wife's like, we'll start one. I'm like, no. <laughs> Why? Because I was afraid we didn't have enough money to put money into the retirement fund. And I was also afraid to trust the stock market. And the last time it, it busted, I know several people that lost thousands of dollars in their 401k. I'm like, I don't even have hundreds to put in there. I don't want to lose thousands. I don't want to go negative. But last year, we trusted the Lord, and we started our, our fund, and we've got that beginning to build up. Reluctance is just evidence of fear. Fear of something. You know, there's something to be said about being wise in decision-making, but if we're honest, if we would really just look at our lives and what's underneath the surface, we would admit that most of our reluctance 
involving our faith isn't born out of wisdom and just trying to make a good decision. It's born out of fear for taking that next step. We're afraid. And I was looking up this word reluctance, and it was kind of interesting that in the definition, it also came with this example. It says, boredom and reluctance are both caused by a lack of engagement with an activity. However, boredom is directed by the current activity you're involved in. Any youth want to throw an amen in there? You're like, bored, can you shut up now? You know, my kids are probably thinking that. Boredom is revolved around the current activity you're involved in, but reluctance is caused by negative imaginations of about an activity coming up you've not yet participated in. It's an invention of the mind. You become reluctant because you're afraid of what might happen, not what's presently happening. It's the hesitation to act caused by a lack of engagement with that future activity. It's not based in reality, but it's used at the enemy to stumble, to cause you to stumble, to slow down, to shrink back, to keep you from experiencing God's goodness in the process. I love Pam's testimony last week as she testified that it felt contagious going around and praying with people. And how, like, she wants to do it more. She wants to be a, a sidewalk evangelist. What happened in that moment? Reluctance went away, and she discovered who she is as a child of God. This is what God wants for all of us. But this fear stifles so many people from just being obedient to simple things that Jesus asks us to do. I think about all the testimonies last week, how they would not have happened if we weren't obedient to what God wanted us to do and step out in faith. But once we surrendered and went through that process, we experienced the love of God pour out on us. And I think probably more of God's love poured on us than the people we prayed for, even though we saw some amazing things. It was amazing. And what happened after the fact? There was no more reluctance, but a hunger and a contagious passion for more. In Ephesians 1, 16, and 17, I echo Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. Here he says, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so you might grow in your knowledge of God. Literally, it's translated the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. There's a reason why we're seeking the gifts of the spirit to grow in the prophetic gifts is because we want to know God more. We want to have insight to his heart. We want to know what God's thinking because we want to know what he's like. And the more we know what God is like, the more we can um, understand what we are, who we are through the word. We can read the word through appropriate lens. We don't get a mistranslation because of what we've experienced in the world. We get to know God's heart and use that to allow the Bible to come alive in our lives. The more we get, know God, tangibly and experientially, it goes from being a head knowledge to information and facts just flowing around here to heart knowledge that changes our lives. We need to experience God's love firsthand in a tangible way because the more of his love we experience, the more confident we'll be in who we are. Even when the people we read about in Scripture, like you look at Peter, James, and John, you think of Paul and all the amazing things that they did. You know, many of us like to live vicariously through them. You ever, like, reading through the New Testament and you're reading the stories where, where it says Paul was so anointed by God, he was not just prone to miracles, but unusual miracles. It, it's really interesting because it says that they would take his sweat rag lay it on sick people, and they'd be healed. I'm not sure anybody wants my sweat rag laying on them. That's nasty. Amen. Well, it's Jesus who heals, not the rag. But the interesting thing is God was so, he had such an anointing on Paul's life that they would take the rag, lay it on sick people, they'd get healed, or demons would be cast out. There was such an authority and anointing on his life. But beloved, God wants to do the same thing in you. He doesn't want you to live vicariously through people you read about in the stories. He wants to write a new story in your life. He wants to write a new story through you. He wants the people around you to see his testimony, his reality in your life. So 
I want to show you from the word of God how coming to know and believe the love of God, I'm telling you, God's getting ready to mess some people up this morning. I feel it right now. I feel it. I'm like vibrating from the top of my head to my feet. Knowing God's love for you is going to be a game changer in your life. In 1 John 4, 16 through 18, the word of the Lord says, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence. Somebody say confidence. His love is perfected in us so we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear. Somebody say no fear. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all what, beloved? It casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The fear of death, it's this curse that we wrestle with. Underneath the fear of death, this plague that affects us all, this subconscious ingredient is really a fear of standing before God in judgment and being found unworthy. This fear of if I stand before God, this righteous and holy God, and have to give an account of my life and atone for the sin in my life, I'm going to be toast. And in the words of my dear, sweet little Lundy, we'll be burnt toast. <laughs> I love that. This reality haunts us. You see, even atheists being faced with their own mortality, there's a, a saying in the military, there's no atheist in a foxhole. Because when you're faced with your mortality, when you're faced with the end of your life, all that can be there is what's happening next. What's on the other side? We can try to ignore it all we want, but in the end, the reality of the life to come is all there is. So this is the importance of having in the now, in the present time, an experiential, tangible revelation of the love of God. John said there is no fear in love. It does not exist in love. His perfect love casts out all fear which is why not only does every believer need to come to Jesus Christ to trust him as their Lord and Savior, to be saved, to have their sins forgiven, but we need to come to know God's love more and more every day. The importance of being filled and baptized with the Spirit of God, walking in the Spirit, to have the power to live the Christian life is so vital for our lives. Why? In 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. The presence of the Spirit of God in your life, filling up your life, is what gives you the power to be who God created you to be. It fills you with the love of God, the knowledge of God, and writes your mind. This word self-discipline can also be self-control. That means you're not out of control, trying to find something to bring security or comfort into your life. Why? Because the love you're already rooted in is keeping you fast and secure. Insecurity is a feeling of powerlessness, but the Spirit of God brings power, and the result is not a fearful mind, but a sound mind. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, here's what Paul tells us is really the true ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us. There it is again. Because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with what? Miracles? Cool stories? No. The Spirit has come to fill us with the love of God. He indwells you. He comes to live in you when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said the Spirit will come upon you in baptism and anoint you with power. You'll be, receive power to become or testify and be witnesses of Jesus Christ. The power of the Spirit is born out of the love he fills in your life. When you receive power, you'll be the witness. 
because you'll be able to know Jesus infinitely and intimately and testify about him personally. You will have a personal encounter with the love of God. And you'll be able to walk in your identity. You see, the baptism of the Spirit is really a baptism in love where the love of God comes and sets upon you to write your identity. And this is what changes reluctance to boldness, fear to faith, disconnection to being hot-wired to the king. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, Paul tells the church, he says, and may you have the power to understand as all God's people should. Somebody say should. May you have the power to understand as all God's people should how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. May you understand the depth of God's love as all God's people should. That word should tells us not all God's people understand his love. We don't all understand it. We don't understand the depth, and though it's too deep for us to fully comprehend, that that's what's so amazing about the Lord is that you'll never get to the place where you know enough, where you've discovered it all, and there's nothing left to learn. There's always more. There's always another level, a greater realm, a greater reality. The true reality of the body of Christ is that not all of God's people understand the depth of his love. Many of us have grown up in religious backgrounds that have trained us to be good rule followers, not walk in relationship. And so if we're not following the rules, we feel disgusting, ashamed, and not good enough. See, what overcomes that is the love of God. And the revelation comes by the presence of the Spirit working in and through you, living the Spirit-filled life. Paul tells us really two important things about the Spirit in the New Testament. He tells us you can stifle his work in your life and you can also grieve his heart. You can stifle his work and you can grieve his heart. What does it mean to stifle? It means to quench his power and his work in your life. That he's not going to take you over. He's not going to make you do something you don't want to do. He's going to invite you into an opportunity. He's going to invite you into a relationship and say, will you come with me? Will you walk with me? Let's do this thing together. I want you to experience this. I want you to be a part of this. I want you in on this. And you have the right as a child of God to say yes or no. And when we say yes, oh, he gets excited. But when we say no... It breaks him. Breaks him. You realize you have the ability to break the heart of God. To bring sorrow to the one who exists to reveal love to us. So how do we grieve him? What, what is it? Isaiah 63, 10 says, they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. He became their enemy and fought against them. Speaking of Israel in the Old Testament and in other nations. But what it shows us is that when we rebel, when we choose not to walk in step with the Spirit, but go our own way, follow our own wisdom, our own plan, and not capitalize and activate our faith in the moment, we bring grief to his heart. And why is he grieved? Is he grieved because we're sinning? again? No. He, he saw that from the beginning of time. Why is the Spirit of God grieved? He's grieved because he can't do what Jesus sent him to do, which is what? Reveal the heart of the Father in your life. He can't open more revelation of love in your life and then dump his love out of your life into other people around you. His heart is grieved because he's not able to do what he was sent to do. Have you ever been in, in school and there's like an opportunity to like answer a question or maybe compete with other kids and, 
and the teacher had a prize or some type of reward. And, and so everyone's raising their hand. They want to answer. And your teacher starts calling on people and they get the wrong answer. But you know you have the right answers. Like, I have, I'm going to get this right. I'm going to win. And so you're like straining. Yeah, pick me, pick me, pick me. And they keep teaching or picking other people and they keep getting the answer wrong and, and, and they're going through the list and finally she gets like, okay, one more, one more. I'll give one more person a shot and she doesn't pick you and you know you have the right answer. Like, come on, just pick me already, right? But she doesn't pick you and then, she, and, and then the teacher's like, okay, that's enough and then they move on. What happens? You go from exciting anticipation to grief. Because you had the answer. You knew. And now your opportunity's gone. This is what grieving the spirit is like. Just say yes. Just empty your hands and come to me. Let me fill you up. I got somebody for you to speak to. I have somebody for you to pray for. I have somebody for you to give a generous gift to. I have somebody for you to buy their lunch in the drive-through window behind you. I have, I have this mission for you. Just say yes. And when we say yes, guess what? Oh, the celebration happens. And, and we get blessed because we're filled with joy because the love of God is overflowing. But when we say no, he misses his opportunity. Beloved, 1 John 4, 16 says, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. His perfect love casts out all fear. But notice, you're not instantly cured of fear the moment you place your faith and trust in Christ. John says, we've come to know, which means this is a process. It's a process. It's a process of following the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, learning to obey His voice, hear His voice. And as we follow and we have these encounters and these experiences, what happens? We begin to believe and trust that what He says is true. We get to believe and trust in the security we have in the love of God. And that makes our faith real as we become confident in the only thing that remains forever. It says, those who abide in love abide in God. That word abide also means continues. You continue in this journey with the Lord. You continue in pursuit of his heart. You continue seeking being filled. We pursue the spirit of God to be baptized in his love and power, to release that into the lives of those that are around us. Following his leadership, what will happen? We will grow in our knowledge of God's love. And we will experience his perfect love. And what does his perfect love do, beloved? It casts out all fear. You see, if insecurity is natural, then security is supernatural. And we need an ever-growing relationship with the Spirit, a knowledge of his love, to grow deeper into who we are as children of God. We are not fearful because God's not given us a spirit of fear. We are people filled with power, with love, and a sound mind. You know, some of you, you know, you're here and you've never been baptized or filled in the Spirit, and you want to be baptized in the Spirit to make this faith that's been intellectual for so long become tangible. It's an awesome thing. I know exactly how you feel. But there's some things getting in the way, and that's a lot of tradition and religious mindsets and conditions. When we come to the Lord with conditions, we can't expect to receive from the Lord. We have to come and surrender. Not with our hands full, but with our hands empty. You know, there were times in my life where I had to say, okay, God, I'm going to forget everything I've ever learned, and I want you to teach me afresh. And until I was empty like that, God couldn't show me anything. But oh, the things that he's shown me since. God wants to fill you. He wants to touch you. But some of you are going to need to let go of what you've been using to give you security. That's called laying down your idols. The things you run to, you're going to cast it down and say, God, I'm not going to worship this anymore. I'm going to worship you. 
I'm going to give you my life wholly, completely. I'm going to let go of religious traditions in pride and fear. And I'm going to grab on to the gift of the Spirit. And some of you want to go deeper. You want more of God. You want to be bold. You want to be a witness. But there's something making you reluctant. Something that's holding you back. There's a level of guilt and shame you've not been able to shake because of past mistakes and things that you've gone through. You look at other people's lives and you're like, man, I'm not like that person. I'm not like that person. I don't think I'll ever get there. I wish I was this or I wish I was that because of the shame and the guilt that's on your life. Beloved, the Bible says if we turn away from what we've done and we ask God's forgiveness, he will forgive us and cleanse us completely of all unrighteousness. The record is clean. And there's two scriptures, if that's you here today, you, you want to go deeper, you want to pursue, but there's something in your life that just makes you feel so unworthy to approach God. I want to give you two scriptures to meditate on today before we go into a time of response. Number one, I want you to meditate on Romans chapter eight, verse one. If you've trusted in Christ as your savior, the word of God says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the what? Spirit. There's no condemnation. What's that mean? That means you go to the courthouse of the rap sheet a mile long, and when you stand before the judge, he says, what rap sheet? There's no condemnation. God doesn't see it. There's no fear, because fear has to do with punishment. But perfect love casts out all fear. He's not condemning you. It's like the story of the woman caught in adultery before Jesus' feet. The people around her had stones ready to kill her because of what she'd done. And after he rebukes the, the Pharisees and they drop their stones and walk away, she looks up at him and he says, where are your condemners? And she's like, I don't know. And he's like, I don't know either. And I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. What was he doing? He was calling her into identity. You're not condemned. Get up, get out of the mess, and go be who I created you to be. You're not condemned. The second is Hebrews 13, verse 5. It says, keep your life free from money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a radical, revelatory passage of scripture. Why do people love money? It's because they think it gets them security but it's a delusion. You can't count on it. It can't get you into heaven. It can't give you security that you think it can give you. The only security that we can find is in the love of God. But the key words in this passage, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That word leave means I will never reject you. I will never cast you away. I will never not love you. I will never not like you. I will never not want you around. I will never disregard your feelings, your emotions, your struggles. I will always be in it with you until we're together in glory. And then he says, and I'm not going to forsake you, which means I'm not going to abandon you. Some of you, you've been abandoned by a family member, a relationship, you have been abandoned and you have this fear of abandonment. And so something in there just makes you feel like, oh, I want to believe this, but I can't bring myself to believe it is true. Beloved, God says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. Not only am I madly in love with you, I'm gonna chase you down till you surrender. I'm not going anywhere. You are not condemned. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Why? Because we are secure in his love. Last week, I gave testimony about a time in my life that was a really low point and how God rescued me by letting me encounter his unconditional love for the first time. I had a physical encounter with Christ in my living room. It was life-changing, and I'll never forget it. And after that point, as I'm reading through Scripture, he led me to a passage of Scripture that has become one of my life verses. 
And I just believe leading up to this message, this is a word God has for someone here today. You've known him for a while, but you've made mistakes and you feel unusable by the Lord. You wanna serve, but you just don't feel, you don't feel like you're qualified anymore because of fear, rejection, shame, and guilt. And here's what Isaiah 49, 10, 9 through 10 says, and this is what I believe God is saying to you. He says, I've called you back from the ends of the earth, saying, you're my servant, for I have chosen you and I will not throw you away. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you and help you, and I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. What's the Lord saying? He's saying, you're not a throwaway. You're not a castaway. You haven't screwed up too much. I'm calling you back. Your purpose is still your purpose. Your calling is still your calling. You haven't messed it up. You haven't missed your opportunity. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for the long haul. I'm here to help you and I'm gonna hold you up. And you know what I'm gonna hold you up with? My hand that has never lost a battle. My victorious right hand. You know where Jesus is? Right now, he's at the right hand of the Father. You know who's never lost a battle? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know who's coming again? our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he's gonna lay waste to all the enemies that have risen up and partnered with the evil one. He's gonna lay waste to everything causing fear. He's gonna take death and he's gonna kill death. And for all eternity, those who love and trust him will get to experience his unfailing love in its fullness forever. You've not wasted your chance. God is calling you back. If you're a child of God in this room today, I want you to repeat this with me. Say, I'm a child of God. I'm accepted and I'm secure in his love. I'm a child of God. I'm accepted and I'm secure in his love. I'm a child of God. I'm accepted and I'm secure in his love. Some of you need to say this like you believe it. I'm a child of God. I'm accepted and I'm secure in his love. I'm a child of God. I'm accepted and I'm secure in his love. Let's all stand together. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. God, I thank you that you've wiped the slate clean, that nothing is standing against us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I thank you that you'll never leave us or forsake us. You're calling us back every time we fail. You're there to pick us back up and call us into our identity. And I just speak that in the crowd today. God, I call us into our true identity as children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. God, I pray for those that want to go deeper, God, that right now that you'd prepare their hearts for an encounter with your love and grace. God, right now for those who want to be filled and baptized with the Spirit, God, that they would come empty-handed and God, you would so radically touch them today, Lord, they would wake up completely different, breaking off addictions and strongholds of depression and fear and anxiety and, and just shame and guilt and all the stuff the enemy's been using against us. Lord Jesus, we call on your name. You said all call in the name of the Lord will be saved. So Lord God, we call on the name of Jesus. We welcome you in this place. And as we worship and as we respond, God, we believe in miracles. We believe in power. God, send your love right now in Jesus' name. And we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you're about to do. In the name of Jesus. Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.